Well, good morning, Melanie Park Church family. Um, wish I could see you in person, but I'm glad that we could come together in this way. As we get started this morning, I want to share with you where we'll be heading this next year. But before I do, I want to remind you of where we've uh, been. So this chart is going to show you what we've looked at together over the past uh, 12 years that I've been in this role as teaching pastor. Um, I really appreciate uh, the things that we've been able to look at together, and for sure, um, I'm excited about where we're going, but I think it's good every once in a while to stop and just uh, praise the Lord for where we have been and all the good things that He's done along the way. So beginning next week, we will continue our study in Romans, um, and then after Romans, we will begin looking at the book of Daniel. And I'm really excited about both of these studies. Every study we do is important, but these studies in particular, I think, really speak to the culture in which we now live. And so let me encourage you to do something this year uh, to get the most out of our time together. I want you to do something special and intentional. Uh, each week, Ashley's going to send out what we're calling a Melanie Park Church midweek reminder. And we are trying not to inundate you with lots of information during the week, so this one reminder will include all the key details of what we want you to pay particular attention to. And so this reminder, among other things, is going to include the passage that I will be teaching on the following Sunday. So I want to implore you, and yes, I'm using that word intentionally, I want to implore you to take the time during the week to look at that passage before you arrive on Sunday. Because I'm, I'm convinced that the impact of my preaching has less to do with what I say and much, much more to do with what your heart is ready to hear. I take seriously my responsibility to faithfully provide the truth of God's Word, to plant those seeds each and every week. But you're responsible for cultivating the soil of your soul. Because no seed however good that truth may be, will ultimately survive unless the soil is ready to receive it. So each week, look at the passage. You'll also see the worship songs that we will be doing together that week. Sing those songs before you arrive on Sunday. Take some time to, to pray for me as I prepare each week to teach God's Word. Take some time to prepare, prepare for yourself to be able to receive God's Word. And then also take some time to pray for our church family that we would be faithful in practicing God's word together. So this morning, I would like for us to do that now. So if you would, just uh, take some time to pray for me as we open up God's word together. If you would, uh, just take some time to pray for yourself that you may be in a place where you can receive the truth of God's word and hear God's spirit speak clearly to your heart. And then finally, pray for our church. Pray that God's spirit would continue to move and work through the lives of God's people, to the praise and glory of God's name and the advancement of God's kingdom. May that be true in our church. And please, if you would, pray for that now. Very good. Thank you for taking that time. 
Well, World War II began in Europe on September 1st, 1939. It was uh, during this time that C.S. Lewis was teaching for Oxford at a campus called Magdalen College. In, Octo in October of that same year, so about a month after the war began, Lewis taught a lesson addressing one of the pressing questions of that day. And the question was this, is it right to continue an education in the midst of a war? Or is it more prudent to pause these pursuits until the war is over? Well, in his message, Lewis argues that if man postponed the search for knowledge and beauty until they were secure, the search would have never begun. He goes on to say, if we let ourselves, we shall always be waiting for some distraction or other to end before we can really get down to work. He goes on and says, the only people who achieve much are those who want knowledge so badly that they seek it while conditions are still unfavorable. He closes by saying, favorable conditions never come. A case in point is Lewis's good friend, J.R. Tolkien. Uh, Tolkien, who lost both of his parents by the age of 12, also lived through the flu pandemic of 1918, the Great Depression, and World War II. But it was during this time that he wrote the epic novel, The Lord of the Rings. And the compelling theme of that magical story that we all love, I know I certainly do, the compelling theme is hope in the midst of hopelessness. His masterpiece was created in the midst of unfavorable conditions, not in the absence of them. I share this because I've been thinking a lot lately, as I'm sure you have too, about the conditions in which we now live. And to carry over that question that Lewis addressed, let me reframe it and ask you this. Should we pause previously, uh, uh, should we pause previous Christian practices until the pandemic has run its course? Should we pause previous Christian practices until the pandemic has run its course? In other words, is it prudent to pause these pursuits until the crisis is over? In my opinion, this is a, a far more important question than if we should continue an education in the midst of a war. And I want you to know that I've struggled with this question because I believe the predominant opinion, both inside and outside the church, is that if we just wait long enough, then life as we used to know it will return back to normal. But in the back of my mind, I keep asking myself, but what if it doesn't? At what point does our Christian calling become important enough to continue even when conditions are unfavorable? Or will we let the unfavorable conditions reshape our Christian practices? Now, I want you to know that I don't take this lightly at all. In fact, I enter into this with some fear and trepidation. Because I know that no one person has all the right answers to these questions, including me. And sadly, the diversity of opinions has created all kinds of division 
within our church already, within the church at large already. And so that's why I feel compelled to speak to this issue. Because I believe the mission of the church is at stake. I believe our enemy wants to create all kinds of division in order to cause all kinds of, of chaos. And as far as I'm concerned, he's doing a pretty good job of that in our world today. And so if you'll allow me, I want to help uh, guide us down a biblical path to think about this topic together. Because I do believe that Scripture calls us to be prudent but not panicked. To be faithful but not fearful. To be committed but not unkind. And so if you would, go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 4. Uh, and we'll begin reading together in verse 6. But this is a familiar passage, and so I want us to, to look at that together. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. Here Paul writes and says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Now, we, we all know this passage, right? And it appears to be really simple. Just don't be anxious. It's that easy, isn't it? No, not really. And so to understand what this verse says, we need to appreciate what anxiety really is. At its core, anxiety is a fear of the future. It's what I call what-if worry. What if a robber breaks into my house? What if my child gets in an accident? What if I get COVID? And all these what-ifs come with the, the worry of what could be. And at least in my own personal experience, it's usually the worst-case scenario. Like the, the robber breaks in and kills my family. Or, or the accident results in a fatality. Or COVID leads to an agonizing death. And, and over this past years, I will confess to you that I have been consumed by fears like this. Even to the point of being completely incapacitated and overwhelmed with panic. But that's what anxiety does. It paralyzes you with a fear of future possibilities. Even if none of those things exist in your present reality. Which is why I believe Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 34, do not worry about, there it is, tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. God will equip us to deal with today. T tomorrow is in his hands and ultimately out of our control. So when Paul says be anxious for nothing, he's telling us don't try to control what is already in God's hands. There's a line in a Casting Crown song that I really love. It says to you, speaking of God, to you, God, my future is a memory because you're already there. 
Saying no to anxiety is only possible if we say yes to trusting God. That's why Paul says in verse 6, be anxious for nothing, but, and that's an important transition, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And don't overlook those two really important words just kind of hidden in the middle and often overlooked with thanksgiving. Because our thanksgiving does not come as a result of a favorable answer from God to our prayers. In fact, this verse doesn't say anything about God answering our prayers at all. But if we really trust the Lord, our joy does not depend on his response. Our joy is from the assurance that our life is ultimately in his hands. We are settled by simply knowing he's got this. To you, my future is a memory because you're already there. I can focus on today because I'll trust that God takes care of tomorrow. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, ultimately comes from relinquishing control. Choosing to live in the present instead of all the what-if worry of the future. And notice Paul's instruction doesn't end there. If worry is based on the worst-case scenarios, then faith is ultimately based on the best possible promises. It says in verse 8, set your minds on what is true, what is honorable, what is right, pure, lovely, and of good repute. If there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And that word dwell is important. It means to to linger. It means to take some time to consider the, the truths of the gospel, the promises of God. And so let me give you a challenge here. If you would, Take some time to run your social media through that list. See what comes through. What's true? What's honorable? What's good? See, I think we're letting the, we're dwelling on the wrong things, ultimately. We, we, we spend so much time on the information from the world that is so easily accessible to each and every one of us that we lose sight of biblical truths. We're letting worldly opinions reshape our Christian convictions. When Jonathan Edwards was just 18 years old, which was pretty amazing, he was already preaching. In one of his first sermons, he was teaching Christians how to think. And I believe what he said back then applies to us just as much now. He says, first of all, for the Christian, even bad things work out for good. We know that because of Romans 8.28. We see it in the Old Testament when Jonathan tells it, or Joseph tells his brothers what you intended for evil, God has used for good. So even bad things turn for good. And good things, he goes on to say, good things like adoption into God's family, like the security of our salvation, those things can't be taken away. And then he goes on and says, finally, the best things, things like a new heaven and a new earth, where there's no more weeping and there's no more sadness, the the best things, those things are yet to come. That's where we need to set our minds. That's where we need to linger and spend time thinking. Bad things work out for good. Good things can't be taken away. And the best things 
are yet to come. No matter what might be happening in the world, those promises are always true. So here's an application to this first point. Be prudent, but not panicked. Be prudent, but not panicked. Don't let what if worry prevent us from doing what God has commanded and instructed his church to do. And the scripture is clear. Hebrews 10.25 says, Do not forsake your gathering together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Oh, but what if someone's not wearing a mask? Or, or what if someone is asymptomatic? Or, or what if singing creates a, a virus cloud in the church? Oh, please understand, I am in no way suggesting that faith somehow magically relinquishes us from all these risks. That's not true. What I am saying is that if you're waiting for all those worries to go away, you may never return. So if you feel more comfortable wearing a mask, then please, by all means, you should wear a mask. If you don't like hugs and handshakes, then give a friendly wave. That's okay. Be prudent, but not panicked. At some point, and this is important, listen to this. At some point, we must decide when biblical practices are important enough to continue, even when conditions are unfavorable. Which brings us to our next passage. If you would, turn to Acts chapter 20, verse 22. Acts chapter 20, verse 22. And listen as we read in beginning in verse uh, 22. And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem. This is Paul. Not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await you. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly to the gospel of the grace of God. As a reminder, this is a conversation that Paul is having with the elders at the church of Ephesus on his way back to Jerusalem. And although he doesn't know the details, he does know that he's destined to endure suffering. He's fully aware of the bonds and afflictions that await him. But this does not change his mind. Because for Paul, protecting his life was not his highest priority. Fulfilling God's calling on his life? Now that absolutely was. Paul would rather be faithful and die than compromise and live. So let me ask you, what's God's mission for your life? As a Christian, what has God commanded you to do? If you look at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 18, it says that God has placed the members of the body, each one of them, just as he desires. It goes on in verse 7 and says, and he's given each of those members a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So God designed each member in the body to be dependent on one another, which means our individual flourishing depends on our corporate fellowship. Don't miss that. 
Our individual flourishing depends on our corporate fellowship. In addition, there are ordinances that we know of that require us to be together. Things like baptism and the celebration of communion, both requiring us to to gather as God's people. These are all a part of God's calling on our lives as a part of his family. And I don't know that anyone would necessarily disagree that those apply to every true believer. The question is, are they important enough to continue when it requires risk and sacrifice to our comfort? If you knew that faithfulness required suffering, would you still do it? Or if we're honest, is protecting our life really our highest priority? Is comfort the determining factor in our decisions? Please understand, I am not in any way denying the danger of what we are facing in our world today. I'm not suggesting that we just throw caution to the wind and pretend that it's not real. It's real. That's why I said, be prudent, but not panicked. God has designed His church to function in a specific way. We must be careful. Please hear me on this. We must be careful not to let this crisis in our culture reshape the priorities of the Christian church. I really am thankful for the technology like we're doing today that allows us to make accommodations like we have over the past year. But technology has to be temporary. Why? Because it's such a poor substitute for the real thing. Not only that, it it, it also adds to an already existing compromise within the Christian church. And that compromise is customizing our Christianity to meet our personal needs. We talk about this in the membership class, and we talk about it in terms of of a cruise ship and a battleship. When you go on a cruise ship, it's all about you, right? Everyone there is to make sure you have the best possible experience. You want to be fed well. You want to be fully entertained. You just want to have fun. But a battleship is altogether different. On a battleship, each each person is there to fulfill a specific role, even though everyone is there to fulfill one single mission. And that mission often causes you to go into some very dangerous places. But you're not there for your own personal comfort. You're there for a higher calling. See, virtual church is built around personal comfort, not biblical mission. You can stay in your pajamas. You can pause and go get a snack. You can even fast forward if you don't like what I'm saying, which I hope you're not doing in the moment. But... It's an option. And the longer this continues, the more comfortable we become with these accommodations. It starts to reshape how we do church. We can stroll through live stream options like we pick out a movie on Netflix. And if it's just too difficult to get your kids ready for church, that's okay. We can, do, we can just do church at home. And let me tell you this, if parents aren't coming up with that idea, I promise you 
your kids will. And now we've reshaped the priorities of the next generation. I do find it interesting how we applaud college and professional sports for accepting the risk and continuing their seasons, and we're all enjoying watching their games, aren't we? I know I am. I find it interesting that we believe that education in the classroom is so much better than online learning, and I wouldn't disagree. How we should support our restaurants and small businesses during such a time like this. But if all this is true for these areas, why isn't it true for the church? The only reason that we believe it is true is if the mission of the church is worth the risk of gathering as a church. It's only true if we believe God calls us to be faithful even when conditions are unfavorable. So, we must be willing to to be prudent but not panicked. To be faithful but not fearful. And then finally, to be committed but not unkind. So if you would turn to Romans chapter 14 and let's look at one more passage together. Romans chapter 14. You would follow along with me as I begin reading in verse 1. It says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. It's important to know as we look at this passage that that Paul is not pointing his finger at any particular group. If anything, he's challenging the one who is stronger in faith. But the biblical principles apply to both groups. In this situation, it says that there are those who are unwilling to eat meat. They are going to only eat vegetables. And it's not explicit in this verse, but in all likelihood, they are unwilling to eat meat that is being sacrificed to idols. And Paul says their faith is weak because they believe that physical meat can be spiritually corrupted. And biblically, that's not true. We know that because of what Jesus said in Matthew 15, verse 11, when he says, It's not what enters the mouth that defiles a man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, that defiles the man. See, those who were stronger in faith knew that to be true, so they could eat meat with a clear conscience. But there were those who saw things differently, and so so they couldn't. But regardless of what side of the issue you were on, Paul says that neither believer should judge the other for their decision. Paul says that the one who eats meat should not look with contempt upon the one who doesn't. Now that word contempt is a pretty strong word. It means to look down upon or to despise. It's judging another person's conviction and saying, well, that's stupid. You have to be an idiot to believe that's true. In fact, I'm not even sure you're a Christian if that's what you believe. It's despising another person for not seeing an issue the same way as you do. But the same can be true for the person who doesn't eat meat as well. 
Paul tells them not to judge those who do eat meat. The judgment is ultimately a verdict based upon the standard of their own opinion. It's important to see that in this example that Paul is giving us, both could be right or both could be wrong. They could each hold to their conviction with a desire to to honor the Lord. One who abstains is making a sacrifice for the sake of moral purity. The one who eats is honoring the Lord as the one and only true God. But on the other hand, they could both be wrong. If they pridefully judge someone else for holding an opinion different than their own. However, let me be clear here. Do not make the mistake of hearing what I'm saying is everyone able to do what is right in their own eyes, okay? Where truth is relative to our own personal opinions. Let me be clear. God's word is absolute truth and should never be compromised based on cultural trends. And I need you to know that's not what's happening in this passage. By identifying the one who is stronger in faith, Paul is acknowledging that there are those who have a better biblical understanding of the issue. Those who are weaker in faith clearly have room to go, grow, but, th- but they can't grow if they're made to feel foolish for their own personal conviction. This is like an adult making fun of the instability of a toddler as they're learning how to walk. Okay, don't just laugh and stare at them. Get up. Go help them. Come alongside them so that they can learn and grow. See, the church has to exist within a context of grace. So let's take the very divisive issue of masks as an example. One person may have a conviction based upon a desire to honor governing authorities. What they see is being done for the common good. And and that's biblical. They believe it's the loving thing to do. There are others, however, who see mass as as a barrier, literally, to showing genuine love and affection towards another person. They're sensitive to those who really can't wear a mask for very legitimate reasons, some of which may include mental health reasons. They also believe that their conviction is based upon the loving thing to do, and that's biblical too. Now, let me pause here because some of you heard one of the opinions that I just gave and you've said to yourself, well, that's silly. I don't think that's a good reason at all. But let me remind you of what we just walked through in this passage. Don't show contempt if you don't agree with their conviction. Don't pass judgment based on the standard of your own opinion. Look, you can both be right or you could both be wrong. It all depends on how you look at the other person. The church must hold fast to its commitment of grace. And although I do believe strongly that it's time, it's time for us to gather again together as God's people, I know there's some who don't see it that way. And I want you to know that we miss you that we love you, we won't forget you, that we're a family, and that somehow, together, we're going to get through this. 
But do I believe that there will be a time when all this unrest goes away and we can get back to life as normal? No, I do not. And maybe I'm wrong. But that's why I feel so compelled to see the importance of our calling, even when conditions are unfavorable. I don't believe favorable conditions will ever come. I'm in agreement with C.S. Lewis, and part of that is because of what I see happening in the Bible as the day draws near. The Scripture tells us that as the time of the Lord approaches, things will go from bad to worse. And since unity ultimately is our greatest strength as a church, it only makes sense that our enemy would seek to divide us. And as I said earlier, I think he's doing a pretty good job so far. I'm convinced that the mission of the church is too important to compromise. And that Jesus Christ is worth any sacrifice it takes to follow him. Even when conditions are unfavorable. So may we be prudent but not panicked. May we be faithful but not fearful. May we be committed but not unkind. May we be the church that God has called us to be. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the time that we were able to spend together looking at your word this morning. And Lord, I do pray that with all the messages that are happening in our world today, I pray that the truth of your word is the one that speaks the loudest to our hearts. That it would stir within us a desire to honor and follow you, even when that requires personal sacrifice to do so. Lord, we believe that your spirit is at work among your people, that your kingdom is being advanced, and you are calling us to be a part of the work of salvation and redemption that is happening in our world today. And very often, as we've seen throughout history, you do some of your greatest work in some of the most difficult and despairing times, times like this. And so may we fulfill what you've called us to do as your people, even when conditions are unfavorable. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you again for spending time with us this morning. And I do uh, encourage you, one of the privileges that you have in a format like this is to take some time after the service just to sit around and visit about what you heard. And I'd encourage you to do that this morning. And maybe a good thing to do is to look back at that Psalm 62 that was displayed during that last song and read that passage together. Be reminded that He alone is our rock and our salvation, our stronghold. And in Him we will not be greatly shaken. Let's renew and firm up our commitment as God's people to live in a way that brings God glory for the praise and glory of His name, the advancement of His kingdom, even when conditions are unfavorable. Now, as a reminder, we are going to have a one-week delay in returning from what we had originally anticipated, but I'm thankful for Mark Woodfin. It was about a two-month delay that turned into a one-week delay because of his hard work. And so I'm grateful that we can do this just one more time. And then on August 31st, I hope that you will consider being here and joining us as we gather together. Let me pray as we close our time.
Did I say August 31st? Okay, before I pray, let me clarify. January 31st. <laughs> let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege of being here together. And we do look forward to being present with one another in a couple of weeks. Until then, would you help us learn to trust you more and more, even more as the day draws near. Help us rest in you as our stronghold, our shield, and may we not be greatly shaken. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you and have a great day.